The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. You can go ahead and start opening your Bibles to John chapter 3. Ooh, I have cooked up something for you to take in this evening. And as you're turning there, let me just... um, mention this. It's been a busy, busy past couple of days. Lots of interesting things. Some exciting news broke this weekend with the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned by our Supreme Court. And there has been all kinds of fallout from that decision. And and there are protests that are happening across the nation. And Um, There have been threats that have been made against centers that provide pregnancy alternatives. It was just a few weeks ago that we had Camille uh, come to the church, and she oversees True Choice Medical Clinic right here in San Diego, and we shared and highlighted her story. And so we want to keep her and her team in our prayers as they now have a big target on their back. And we also want to just um, pause to celebrate, you know, that, that light has prevailed over the darkness and uh, praise the Lord for that. Even uh, Judge Clarence Thomas has talked openly about how this case has opened the door for other similar cases to be revisited. And we'll see where things go there. But um, we um, have been called as God's people to shine our light and to allow our voice to be heard. We live in a democracy, and so we're thankful for the courts aligning their choices with righteousness. Um, Also, one more thing to note before we get into our study. I had the privilege of attending uh, a gathering of pastors in LA, in the Beverly Hills region. And there's a group of us. um, It's a group called Friends of Israel. My dad was instrumental in getting this group started. And I have since joined. And uh, we had a meeting at the General Consul of Israel's house. He's become a friend. And so we got to hold this meeting in his home, which, by the way, when you visit the consulate of a foreign dignitary, you are standing on the sovereign ground of that nation. I went to Israel this last week, which is kind of exciting. Um, And and we stood in solidarity together um, and just recognized the fact that we are friends, that we have shared values, that we support one another. And Israel needs friends. In fact, the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we know that Israel, their, their government has just dissolved yet again. It's the fourth time in the last two years. It means they're going to be holding elections again in the fall. It looks like Benjamin Netanyahu's name is surfacing, and he might be getting involved. And there's just so much going on and so much instability in our world at a time when Israel, in particular, desperately needs a steady hand at the helm with everything that's happening in Iran and the threat of nuclear war and all of that. And so as we get started this evening, we should also be in prayer for our Jewish brothers and sisters. The Bible clearly states that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And so we support Israel, not just because she is a democracy or a flagship of democracy in that region of the world, but also because 
She is God's chosen people, the apple of God's eye. And if you want to see peace in the world, then you need to see peace in Israel. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And Father, we want to recognize um, what has happened this week, and we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate that lives are going to be spared, precious little babies, Lord. And we stand for life, unapologetically, Lord. We can rally around that cause, and so we celebrate, Lord that the courts have recognized what science has long known, that life begins in the womb. And so, Lord, we pray for righteousness to prevail in our country. We know that the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Lord. So we pray for more godly lights to step into our court systems and, and to become public servants, Lord, and to serve at every branch of our government. Lord, we also stand with Camille and, and all those who serve at pregnancy alternative centers. Would you protect them and would you cause their voice to be amplified in these times, Lord, as they perform an important service in our community? <clears throat> Lord, we also want to pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters as they are entering into a season of unrest and turmoil as well. We pray that you would bring your will to bear in that nation, Lord, that you would appoint the right person, Lord, who can oversee things and can protect the borders of that country. We pray for peace, Lord. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And ultimately, Lord, we recognize that when we pray for peace, we are actually praying that you, the Prince of Peace, would come back, Jesus. And so really our prayer tonight is Maranatha. Lord, would you come back? Would you right every wrong? Would you, would you dry the tears from every eye? Lord, would you bring your righteous rule and reign and establish your throne in Jerusalem, Lord? And would, would you become our teacher tonight as well as we open the word? Would your Holy Spirit lead and guide us into the truth? We pray and ask for this according to the power of your mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So the title of my message is How to Get to Heaven. And tonight we have the privilege of eavesdropping on a conversation that took place late one night between a powerful, wealthy, influential man named Nicodemus and Jesus. Max Lucado says that this is the most important conversation that has ever occurred. And I'm inclined to agree with him. The topic of their conversation that night happened to be the subject of heaven. Now, heaven has always been a popular topic, and it continues to be so even to this day. It has fascinated people for centuries, and it has served as the subject for, for various songs and poems and books and films and other things. Earlier this week, I typed in the phrase, how do you get to heaven, into my Google search engine, and instantly I was greeted with 636 million pages in response. So clearly, there is a lot of interest when it comes to this particular subject, even if there is disagreement on how you get there. The one thing we can all agree on is that, hey, we all want to go to heaven. 
Well, Jesus had a lot to say about heaven. He said that he came down from heaven. He said that he was returning to heaven. His stories often shined a spotlight on heaven. And his miracles, they functioned like a sneak peek of what heaven is like. Heaven's a place where there's no more suffering or sorrow or sickness or death or disease. One day when one of his disciples asked him how to get to heaven, Jesus responded by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father or nobody gets to heaven except through me. And because of who Jesus was, and because of the singularly unique life that he lived, and because preeminently, because he conquered the grave, we have to weigh and consider what Jesus had to say on this topic. And that's what we get to do tonight as we consider John chapter 3. So go ahead and begin reading with me there in verse 1. It says, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, so these first two verses introduce us to one of the two key figures in this study. His name is Nicodemus, and the first thing we learn about him is that he was a Pharisee. Now, if you grew up in or around the church, you probably... You know, you want to hiss and boo because we all recognize the Pharisees as the bad guys in the plot of the story of the Bible. But they weren't always viewed that way, especially not in Jesus' day. If anything, the Pharisees were considered the best of the best. They were bright. They were the ultra-religious. They were passionate. And they were zealous to please God. They made it the preeminent aim of their life to uphold all of God's commandments. These guys took the idea of being good and basically turned it into a pro sport. So that was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. The other thing we learn about him is that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, this council was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of a group of 70 men, and together they handled all of the religious affairs of Israel. This group was incredibly powerful and politically influential. Now, a little later on in the conversation, Jesus is going to refer to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel, which If you read into that a little bit, it seems to be an allusion to the fact that Nicodemus was the preeminent teacher of Israel. When you put all of that together, it amounts to a pretty impressive resume. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, Nicodemus was well known. He was highly respected and deeply religious. He would have been a national figure. He would have been a celebrity of sorts. He was the guy that when he walked down the street, people stopped and pointed and asked if they could take selfies with him. In the eyes of the world, Nicodemus had achieved the very pinnacle of success. He had everything going for him, respect, renown, riches. He had it all. Yet despite all of those things, what we're about to see is he was still empty on the inside. 
And I think there are a lot of people just like Nicodemus. On the outside, they are a picture of success. They have achieved everything that this world says a person needs in order to be happy, and yet they're not. They may even be religious, but on the inside, they feel hollow and dissatisfied. And I wonder if I just described anyone in here tonight. In Nicodemus' case, his dissatisfaction with life led him to the feet of a man named Jesus. He observed something in Jesus, a quality of life. He heard his teaching, and he was intrigued by what he heard. He saw his miracles and, and knew that it was unmistakable. It was the power of God. And so he sought out a meeting with Jesus. Nicodemus is what we might call a seeker. And maybe you're a seeker, too. That's why you're here. You're curious about Jesus, the claims of Jesus. You might even like Christians, or at least you like what Christianity stands for, and that's why you're here. And if that's true, then let me just welcome you this evening. We are so glad you're here. And by the way, you came to the right place. Now, something that John tells us a couple of times about this meeting is that it took place at night. So why did Nick come at night? When I was a a kid, there was a show called Nick at Night, or a a series of programs. So this is like the biblical version of Nick at Night, right? (laughs) Anyways, a lot has been made over the years of the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And as I just mentioned, John points it out twice, which means he evidently thought it was significant. So why did he come at night? Well, there are two possibilities. Perhaps he came at night out of convenience's sake, right? Nicodemus was a busy guy. Jesus was also a busy guy. Plus, Jesus always had a crowd around him whenever he went anywhere. And maybe Nicodemus just wanted to have a few minutes with Jesus all to himself. And so that's why he came at night. That's one possible explanation. The other, and in my opinion, more likely explanation, is that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was embarrassed to be seen with Jesus during the day. You have to understand that even at this early stage in Jesus's ministry, he was a highly controversial figure. Besides, Nicodemus was supposed to be the guy with all the answers. He was the man. He was the guy other people came to with their questions. And maybe he didn't want people to know that he was just as confused about life as they were. Either way, in the end, what we know is that he came. Yes, he came by night, but at least he came. And for that, we can be thankful. When he approached Jesus, he pays him a high compliment. He calls him a rabbi, which might better be translated great one. He was was observing and acknowledging the fact that Jesus was a godly man. But before he could fire off any of the long list of questions that I'm sure he came to Jesus with, he he got cut off. And Jesus said to him, very truly, this is verse 3, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> so Jesus launches them into this conversation. And at the heart of their conversation is this burning question, how good is good enough? See, at the end of chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus didn't need anybody to testify of him because he already knew what was in the heart of every person. And that's exactly what I see happening and unfolding here. Perhaps Nicodemus wanted to dance around the subject for a little bit, but Jesus cuts right to the chase and gets to the heart of the matter because he saw into Nicodemus's soul and he knew that what he really wanted to know is whether or not he had done enough to earn his way into heaven. And again, I have to come back and circle back to this idea of who Nicodemus was. He was not just a good guy. He was a really good guy. I mean, if ever someone could get into heaven on the basis of their spiritual resume, it was Nicodemus. If we were going to nominate one person to represent humanity before God, we'd have a tough time finding a better candidate than him. He was, in many respects, the best that humanity had to offer. And yet Jesus tells him, you don't make the cut. In fact, what he really said was very truly, in other words, listen, tune in, pay attention, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's clearly shocked Nicodemus. I mean, it's not hard to see why he was the most religious man of all of Israel. And so if he couldn't get in on his own, then who could? And the answer is no one. Isaiah the prophet said it like this, and I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We're all unclean. The Bible says we're like sheep. We've all gone astray. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned, the Bible says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the first step in understanding the gospel is realizing that being good isn't good enough. Let me say that again. The first step in understanding the gospel is realizing that being good isn't good enough. You can't ever be good enough to save yourself, which is what a lot of people try to do. They try to earn their way into God's good graces by being religious. And they can do this through a variety of ways. Maybe some people do it by coming to church or reading their Bible or praying or any other number of good things. Others try to save themselves by making sure they're at least better than someone else that they know. And this is a great tactic, because you can always at least find one person like, well, I'm not Hitler. I haven't killed anybody. So I'm, I'm a good person. And that's why God should accept me. But here, Jesus makes it clear that no one will get to heaven or see the kingdom based on their own efforts. And then he talks about the second birth. And so we need to talk about the must of the second birth. According to Jesus, the only way anyone will see the kingdom is if they're born again. And I, I want you to notice how in verse 7, he says, you must be born again. That word is written as an imperative. It's a command. 
not a suggestion. Jesus doesn't tell us that we should consider being born again. He doesn't say that we should think about it or contemplate it. He says, no, you must be born again if you ever want to get to heaven. It's interesting to study the Bible and to see the various verses that employ the use of this very specific word, must. For instance, there is that time in Acts chapter 4 where Peter is standing before the very same council of men who condemned Jesus to death. And he said, in part, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. We must be saved. You must be born again. So we need to dig into that concept and talk about that term, born again. Because sadly, I'm afraid that it's one of those phrases that has lost a little bit of its shine. And perhaps it's lost a little bit of its meaning over the years. Kind of like many words. Words evolve and change over time. One example would be the word awesome. We think of the word awesome, and we use it as slang for something that is uh, relatively cool. We like it. But its original meaning was used to describe something that was literally awe-inspiring or filled with awe. It was used to describe a scene that would send shivers down your spine. But over the years, the word was co-opted and diluted and eventually stripped of its original meaning to the point where now we just use it kind of whatever. Oh, that's awesome, you know, surfers. Awesome, bro. The same thing has happened with the words born again. Some people are turned off by that phrase. They'll say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born again believers, as though being a born again Christian was an optional package or an add-on to the Christian faith. Listen, it's not. There's no such thing as a Christian who has not also been born again. So what does it mean? Well, the term born again literally means born from above. And the idea embedded in that phrase, it speaks of this thought of complete renewal or change. It means to start over again. Now, Nicodemus hears all of this, and his question two times in the chapter is, how can this be? He's genuinely puzzled by Jesus' statements about needing to be born again. He didn't see how it's possible. I mean, it's like thinking literally here, can I climb into my mother's womb? I'm sure she's not going to be game for that. How does this work? And yet, I think we'd all agree that at the same time, there are, there are those moments in life where we wish we could start over, when we wish we could go back and take something back, or go and unsay something, or undo something that we've done. Some of you may have even wished that you could do a redo on your entirety of your life, but you don't get to. As we all know, there are no mulligans, or second chances, or do-overs in this life. I recently read about an app that came out a few years back. The app is called On Second Thought. And I think you're going to want to hear about this. It's an app that lets you unsend a text after it's been sent. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? You ever regretted like an email or a text that you've sent? Well, here's how it works. Once you install the app, you set a grace period of up to 60 seconds, and then you have that amount of time to unsend a message should you change your mind. 
And I'm thinking, oh, that's great for texts and emails, but if only it worked on other areas of our life, right? If only we could go back and undo that, or, oh, I wish I could take that back, or I wish I could go undo that season of my life, or maybe it was a whole decade. But unfortunately, we can't go back. What's been done is done. What's been said is said, and we can't take any of it back. And so <clears throat> we need something. We need a do-over. You know how when you're surfing the web and you get that little spinning wheel of death that lets you know the page is failing to load, you can go into the corner of your screen and you can click on the little half circle and it's a refresh icon and it will refresh the page and usually that does the trick and gets it to work. But then there are those times when something has gotten deeply embedded into your device and something more drastic is needed. For instance, one time my phone was just not working at all and it was just glitching all over the place and I tried refreshing it, I tried resetting it and finally I went to my friend who knew more about phones and he said, oh, no, 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 what you need is a factory reset. I said, factory reset, what's that? He goes, well, when you do a factory reset, it takes your phone back to its original factory settings. And so he did that for me and immediately my phone started working again. And as you think about humanity in some regards, that's what we need. We don't just need a refresh. We don't just need a reset. We need a factory reset. We didn't just need a little help from God or a gentle nudge to get over the hump. What we needed was a whole new beginning. And Jesus recognized that, which is why he puts his finger on the very issue here and addresses it by saying, what you need, Nicodemus, is new birth. The new birth is the second chance that our hearts all long for. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talked about it like this. And let's go ahead and read this verse together out loud as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Somebody say, praise the Lord. When you become a Christian, when you are born again, in other words, you are so radically changed from the inside out, it's like you become a brand new person. Think about it like this. What does a butterfly have in common with a caterpillar? Nothing, right? And yet, that is a, a fitting picture or description of the radical transformation or change that takes place in the person's life who gives their heart to Jesus. When God moves into a person's life, he gives them a new heart, a new nature, and a new destiny. He brings, this, brings them into a new family. He gives them a new name and a new identity. They can walk in new mercy every morning and experience a renewed sense of purpose. Eventually, the Bible says that Jesus is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, everything about Christianity is about entering into what is new. Does that sound good to anybody else here tonight? No wonder they call it good news. Now, this was a new concept for Nicodemus, and Jesus could tell that he was struggling to grasp it. So he pulled analogy, an analogy from nature to describe what the effects of this new birth look like in a person's life. And he said, and maybe as he said this, there was a gentle breeze that just began to blow, and, and it blew through the trees that were surrounding them while they had this conversation. 
But Jesus said to Nicodemus, look at the wind. Well, you can't see the wind clearly. But what you can see are the effects of the wind as it rustles the leaves in a tree. Or perhaps if you've ever flown on the plane, you can't see the wind, but you can feel the effects of turbulence. And only a fool would say, I won't see, I won't believe it until I can see it. No, no, no. You've experienced enough of the wind to know that it exists. And in the same way, Jesus says, that's how it is with the spirit. In fact, the very same word for wind in your Bible can also be translated as spirit. And you can't see the spirit of God, but what you can see are the effects of God's spirit as he moves in a person's life. And by the way, this room is filled with stories and individuals and lives who have been transformed and reshaped by the power of the Spirit of God. It wasn't just that they decided to turn over a new leaf. It wasn't just that they made a New Year's resolution to be a better person. Only the Spirit of God can truly change someone from the inside out. Someone say amen. <clears throat> and so Nicodemus is still struggling, as so many of us do. I'm so thankful for him and his honesty and his humility. Because in verse 9, he says, I mean, OK, I'm with you. I'm tracking. But how can this be? He still doesn't get it. And so Jesus, he says, are you Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. He's talking about himself there, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, Nicodemus is confused, and so Jesus starts all over again, and we have to give him grace because, after all, Jesus hadn't just, you know, he wasn't just giving him a paradigm shift here. He had completely dismantled his entire theological framework. And so Jesus pulls this time a story from the Old Testament to help explain how the new birth works. And the book he pulls from is the book of Numbers. And specifically, it's the story that Moses tells us about how on one occasion, I believe it's Numbers 24, as the Israelites are making their way through the wilderness, there was this episode where these venomous snakes found their way into the camp of Israel. And they began to bite the people of Israel. And their poison was such that the people began to die. And so Moses goes before the Lord in prayer. And he says, Lord, what can we do? And God gives him an unusual answer. He says, erect a standard, which would have been a, a long pole with a cross member. And then he says, I want you to take now uh, and fashion a bronze serpent and wrap it around this Pole. And I want you to set it up in the middle of the camp so that whenever one of the Israelites gets bitten by one of these snakes, if they'll go to that pole and if they'll cast their eyes on the serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. Now, that's unusual advice. I mean, particularly in the realm of medicine. It doesn't make a lot of sense logically. And surely there, were, there had to be a lot of people who thought, that's ridiculous. They get bit by a snake and they think, 
Well, there's not even any medicine involved. I'm not going to the middle of the camp and looking, making a fool of myself. I mean, how could looking on a bronze pole ever heal me physically? And so they didn't go, and many of them surely died. But others did. And for all who made their way to that pole and gazed with believing faith, they were healed. They were spared. And so it was the act of faith that healed them from their terminal condition. And Jesus points to that Old Testament story. And he says, that experience of the Israelites, it was a picture or a shadow, if you will, of how all salvation works. It comes to us by grace, through faith. And Jesus says, one day I'm going to be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up that bronze staff and that bronze serpent. I'm going to be lifted up. And when he said that, he was speaking there prophetically about the hour of his death. When was Jesus lifted up? When did that happen? It happened on Calvary's cross. And he hung there on the cross, and he absorbed the guilt and the shame and the suffering of humanity so that whoever casts their eyes upon him and believes in their heart that he is God's deliverer, they will be saved not just from a physical infirmity, but they will be saved from the great, far greater terminal consequences of sin. Again, it's something that doesn't make sense to our logical minds. It's foolishness to so many in the world, and yet, to those of us who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. Yeah, amen. Thank you. So it's an interesting study. As you trace the arc of Nicodemus, his story throughout the Gospels, because this isn't the only time that he shows up in the Scripture. This is the first time, and I've made mention of the fact that he came under the cover of darkness. He arranged this covert, top-secret meeting with Jesus, didn't want to be seen, perhaps. Well, the next time he shows up is a few chapters later in John chapter 7. In that, in that instance, the Pharisees had sent out a delegation of men to go and arrest Jesus. By this point, he was public enemy number one. But they returned empty-handed. Why? Because it wasn't Jesus' time yet. And so he slipped out of their grasp. And at that point, the Pharisees scolded these men who failed to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus interjected. He stepped forward. And he, he briefly interjected that, hey, it's not right for us to condemn this guy, Jesus, before we've had a chance to investigate his teachings for ourselves. Well, they didn't take too kindly to that, and the other Pharisees quickly dismissed his suggestion. Evidently, they'd already made up their mind about Jesus. And so at that point, Nicodemus shrank back. He didn't say anything further at that point. Maybe he was still too scared of what other people thought, and he didn't want to make waves. He didn't want to stir the pot. But even we're starting to see the glimmers of a genuine faith rise up in this religious man. But he shows up one, one more time, sorry, at the end of John's gospel in the 19th chapter, after Jesus' crucifixion. At that point, the Bible tells us that Nicodemus came to Pilate with another guy, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. 
Now, Joseph was another member of the Sanhedrin, another member of that ruling council with Nicodemus. And the Bible tells us that prior to this moment, Joseph had been a secret disciple. Why? Because he was afraid of what the Jews would think of him. But all of that changed when he saw Jesus die on the cross. But it didn't just change for Joseph. It changed for Nicodemus, too. How and why did it change? It changed when they saw the love of God displayed for them in the most poignant way as Jesus was lifted up. And perhaps in that moment, as, Jesus, as Nicodemus saw Jesus hanging on the cross, he thought back to this night. And he thought of this conversation. And he thought of Jesus' words, how the Son of Man had to be lifted up, but that everyone who believed in him would have eternal life in his name. And Nicodemus, in that moment, became a believer. And then these two secret disciples stepped out of the shadows and into the light, and they boldly approached Pilate to ask if they could have Jesus' body for burial. The Bible tells us that Nicodemus himself came with 75 pounds worth of spices to embalm Jesus' body. He may have started out in secret, but he wasn't hiding anymore. I mean, it takes a lot of guts to do what these guys did. Pilate was the guy who condemned Jesus to death, and who's to say that he wouldn't do it with them? But they no longer cared about what people thought. They were finally ready to put it all on the line for Jesus. And here's why I love his story. Nicodemus may have started out as a secret admirer, but he ended up becoming a full-fledged disciple. He may have been embarrassed and afraid in the beginning, but he ended up demonstrating more, more, um, more courage than just about anybody. Certainly, he had more courage than the disciples, who at that moment were hiding behind a locked door in some hidden room. His journey may have started at night but it found its way into the light of day. And I think it's a wonderful reminder to all of us that it's not where you start in life, but it's where you finish up. It's where you end up that truly makes all the difference. Some people, they start out great, but they fizzle and they fade towards the end. I mean, Judas Iscariot comes to mind. He had a great start. He was one of the innermost circle of Jesus' followers, one of the 12. But by the end, he betrayed his Lord. Meanwhile, Nicodemus started out a coward, but he finished strong. Listen, you may have professed Jesus at one time or another in your life, but you've fallen away and you think, I've done too much, and Jesus would never want someone like me, someone who's a coward, someone who was afraid, someone who's timid, someone who has failed the Lord time and time again. I should have spoken up. Think of the guilt that Nicodemus had. I should have done more, but he continued to press on, and he became a devoted follower. And it's never too late to give your life to Jesus. If you're not dead, God's not done. As long as you have breath in your lungs and a heart beating in your chest, there is time for you to give your life to Jesus. I'm fired up tonight. I apologize. We have to finish, though, with verse 16, which is the gospel. In fact, let's all just recite it. Most of us probably have it memorized. If you don't, just read it out of your Bible. And if you know it in a different version, who cares? Let's just say it because it's that powerful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. It was in the context of this conversation that Jesus utters those memorable words. They are words that stand up just fine all on their own. They don't need much explanation for me, so I'll be brief here. But I just want to say this. It's been described as the hope diamond of the Bible because of its beauty. It is the clearest and most concise version of the gospel that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. One author described this verse in this way. He said, and I quote, a 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. We all need the reminder. The heart of the human problem is the heart of the human. And God's treatment is prescribed in John 3.16. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, this verse literally spells out the gospel. Think about it with me. God only son perish everlasting life. G-O-S-P-E-L. God's only son perished so that you could have everlasting life. He tasted the wrath of the Father, endured the fire of God's wrath on the cross so that whoever puts their faith in him shouldn't perish or be separated from God, but should have everlasting life. Each word is worthy of our consideration and our study. And we could probably each pick out a a, a particular phrase that lands or resonates with us. Maybe it's that God so loved the world. Man, that's a powerful concept. That he loves this messed up, broken world. Or maybe it's that he gave his only son. That love always gives of itself. And the greatest expression of love is seen in the Father sending his own heart and his son to us. That whosoever believes in him, that's my favorite word, whosoever. I love the breadth of that invitation. You know why I love it? Because I'm a whosoever. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? So are you. He'll take whoever, however, whenever, and wherever. No status is too low. No hour is too late. No place is too far. God loves you so that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but is given the hope of eternal life. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? We've talked at length this evening about how to get to heaven. But I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity here to make that decision, to give your heart and your life to Jesus. And perhaps you came into this church because You're a religious person. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You're a God-fearer. You're a seeker. You're considering the claims of Jesus. But tonight, you have fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he's calling you into his home, into his family. 
Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and lets me in, then I'll come in and I'll fellowship with him. How do you get to heaven? There are three parts. First, you must recognize that you're a sinner. Hello, we're all in that club. It just means that you're human. The second part is you need to repent of your sin. And the word repent literally means to turn around. You've been walking one way, and to repent is to turn and make an about face and to head home. I love the picture of repentance in the story Jesus told of the prodigal son. The son took his father's inheritance, and he went, and he spent it on himself, and he, he wasted it on parties. But then the Bible tells us that he came to himself. He returned to his true self, and he said, what was I thinking? And maybe that's your story. And tonight, God is calling you home, and you're repenting of your sin. You recognize that you're a sinner. You repent of that sin. And then the third part is you receive Jesus into your heart. And if that's the desire of your heart, if you need to come home tonight, if you need to either turn to Jesus or return to Jesus, you slip your hand up high. I want to pray for you this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the hands that are going up in this room. Praise your name, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And the worship team is going to begin to play now. And for all of you who just raised your hand, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front and stand with me down here. I want to welcome you. I want to give you a hug. You say, why do I have to publicly follow Jesus? Well, listen, every single person whom Jesus ever called, he called publicly. Yes, Nicodemus may have started in the night, but he found his way into the day of light. And maybe it's time that you stop worrying about what other people think and you start thinking about what God thinks. So if you want Jesus, if you want forgiveness, if you want the hope of eternal life, you just get up and you come right now. I'm going to meet you right down in the front. Praise the Lord. Start coming right now. Amen. Amen, you guys. We're going to just pray. And I want you to maybe just put out your hands just like this. And we're going to say a simple prayer. We're going to invite Jesus to do what he promised to do. And when you pray, just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Even when I couldn't love myself, you never stopped loving me. And your love led you into my life into my heart. I surrender it now. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my all in all. Be my everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.